you have your Bible, turn to Nehemiah. Would you please, Nehemiah? And uh, we will continue our series. I, I was going uh, to preach last Sunday, not this passage. I was going to step out of Nehemiah for a week as we celebrated those that were getting baptized. I was going to preach a special message on the topic of baptism and that ordinance that we hold to. Why do we baptize? Why do we do it the way we do it? Um, and, and honestly, it, it was about three weeks in the making. So I'm going to preach that message at the right time uh, before, before our next baptism Sunday. Uh, but just felt like the Lord is leading me away from that last Sunday. And uh, feel like he wants us to get back into me- Nehemiah. And i got to be honest with you, if you ever read through the book of Nehemiah, the first eight chapters is a lot easier to read and digest and retain and understand uh, than the last few chapters of the book. And so I was challenged in my study this week as to what Nehemiah was trying to get across when he recorded chapters 9 and chapters 10. And here's what we got to know about God's Word. It's all good. I mean, it's all profitable for instruction. It's all inspired so as to rebuke and reprove and exhort us. It's all good. And so that I knew going into my study in Nehemiah chapter 9 and 10, hey, there's something God has for us. There's something God wants for this body of Christ on this particular day. And I'm convinced that he gave that to me. And I'm going to try my best uh, to give it to you. We're, we're going to be just, just a little bit in our introduction here because I need to lay some foundation. And I've got to start the message with a little bit of bad news. We're all sinners. I have a lot of moans and groans, but not a very many amens. Is moaning and growing mean you're, you're agreeing with me, but you don't like it? Um, I don't know what that means. Usually it means I'm hungry, I'm tired, I'm cranky, one of the two. I'm going to try that again. We're all sinners. Yeah. I'm not rejoicing over that, but that is something to agree about. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sin can be defined as anything that transgresses the clear teaching of the Word of God. I don't think the question this morning is, have you sinned? Or have I sinned? The truth is, if we were keeping score, all of us have probably sinned in some way already today. Because we're sinners. I think the better question is this, how are you dealing with your sin? Because from the very beginning, man hasn't dealt with their sin very well. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what did they do immediately? They tried to hide themselves. When God confronted them, what did they do? They shifted the blame. You can study the life of Joseph where his brothers threw him into a pit, intending to forsake him because they were jealous of him and his father's relationship. And and then some slave owners came driving by and and they sold their own brother out to be a slave in Egypt. And when their dad asked, hey, where's Joseph? What did they do? They lied. King David, the man after God's own heart, perhaps the greatest king ever in the history of Israel, committed adultery with Bathsheba. And what did he do? He tried to cover it up. And in so doing, became a murderer. You study Joshua chapter 6 and 7 when the children of Israel were going to defeat that fortified city called Jericho and God told them, here's the rules. You march around the city and you do it a certain amount of times and the walls will come tumbling down. And when they do, you take everything except the Babylonian garment and the silver and gold. That's going to be reserved for God's house. 
But there was a man named Achan that got greedy. And he took the gold and the silver. And what did he do with it? He hid it. God told the prophet Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach to the Ninevites. And Jonah said, no, that's a sin. Anytime you say no to God, that's a sin. And how did he deal with that? He ran in his mind as far away from the presence of God as he could. These Bible characters and many more that I could have mentioned really demonstrate a human tendency. Not just to sin, but a failure to deal with our sin appropriately. From the time we were toddlers, we have been naturally very good at hiding our sin. And concealing our sin and denying our sin and shifting the blame for our sin and excusing away our sin and minimizing our sin. I I hate to break this to you, but, but your sweet little grandbabies in the nursery today are sinners. They might have a halo over their head and they might be really, really cute in pictures, but they're big sinners trapped in little bodies. Here's the problem with a failure to deal with our sin appropriately. Here's the problem. Sin's dangerous. Sin destroys. And it's, if it's not dealt with, watch here, it will deal with us. Just Adam and Eve. Ask Adam and Eve. They didn't deal with their sin They got kicked out of the garden. Ask Joseph's brothers who had to live with a guilty conscience the rest of their life. Ask David whose own baby died because of his sin. Ask Achan who was stoned to death because of his sin. Ask Jonah who got swallowed by a well. If we don't deal with our sin, it will deal with us. That's what Nehemiah 9 and 10 are all about. That's how this passage is going to help us as a church today, as individual Christians today. It's going to teach us how to properly deal with our sin. In the first eight chapters of this book, Nehemiah led God's people to rebuild the walls of their city. But he did something even greater than that. He spiritually led these people to rebuild their lives. And at the end of chapter 8, they are literally in the midst of a nationwide revival. Their hearts have been stirred. Their their spiritual souls have been renewed and they are close to God. And that is evident by the way they wanted to deal with their sin in chapters 9 and 10. And by the way, the only way we truly know if real revival has come to our life and real spiritual renewal has come to our life, it's not whether or not we get right with God, it's whether or not we're concerned about staying right with God. And that's what chapter 9 and 10 show us. A people who are determined. Not just to get clean, but to stay clean. They show us three steps for how we should appropriately deal with our sin. And here's the first. You must confront your sin. You must confront it. Look at chapter 9 in verses 1 through 3 together. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be on the screen today. Now on the 20th and 4th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting. And with sackcloth and earth upon them. That's what they typically did for mourning. They weren't mourning the loss of a loved one. They were mourning their sin. Verse 2, And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers, and stood and confessed their sins, and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place, and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God, one-fourth part of the day. Did you see that? For three hours, they stood... As the word of God was read and explained and confronted them with their sin. And hear me, the exposure of the word of God on our lives is the only thing that can really bring the awareness of our sin that we need. 
And I'm here to tell you that it's still the word of God that exposes sin today. Whether it's read, whether it's preached, whether it's taught, whether it's discussed over a table, whether it's sung by a choir, God's word brings conviction. That's why the Bible calls itself a mirror. So you can come to church and look in the mirror of God. You can open it up at your home anytime and you can see yourself for who you really are. It's why the Bible calls itself a two-edged sword that pierces to the deepest parts of us. We can cover up our sin from people with the visible eye, but we can't hide it from the Word of God. That's why it calls, the, the Bible calls itself a hammer, because it can crush the hardest of hearts. It's why it calls it a fire. It can melt a heart. And although it might seem painful at times for God's Word to confront your sin especially in a corporate manner like this. Don't run from conviction. Don't resist conviction. Embrace that conviction upon your life because without that conviction and that confrontation, you can't deal with your sin appropriately. I'm burdened in my heart today because I think that there are a lot of preachers and a lot of Christians alike from the pulpit to the pew, that don't like to deal with sin. We love to sing about the mercy of God over our sin. We love to rejoice about how God makes us clean from our sin. We love to sing and clap together that nothing can wash away our sin but the blood of Jesus. But we don't want to talk about the sin it's washing away. It's okay for us to sing about his mercy, but we can't deal with his mercy covering our sin until we talk about the sin. I still believe it's the God-given role of every spiritual leader in every pulpit, in every Bible-centered church. I still believe it's the God-given role for every preacher to preach the word of God and to expose sin as it is, whether that feels good or not, whether it's popular or not. But a lot of folks in modern day America will run from churches that preach the word. They don't like feeling uncomfortable. They don't like feeling challenged. I don't know where they got this thought and this idea about church. It's not from scripture. But they got this idea about church that you go once a week to get, make yourself feel better. That's why you go to the psychologist. And he doesn't even do a good job of making you feel good. You don't always come to church to make yourself feel better because church isn't a self-centered thing. Church is about worshiping a holy God. Church is about us renewing our commitment to that holy God to be holy ourselves. And so when people walk into a place like this and they're like, oh man, I, I want to go to that church. And, and they hear this thing, oh man, I feel so good. And the preacher gets up and preaches on sin. They're like, oh, it's exactly what I heard about that church. Talk about sin. Try managing your business and never dealing with the negative. Try raising your children and never confronting the negative. See what kind of kids you raise. See what kind of business has turned out. There is no excuse for any preacher at any time to be unloving, uncaring, or unbiblical in their preaching against sin. But there's also not a place for a preacher to get up and run from that responsibility. And God God help our church. 
God help the people of our church. I, I, I'm pretty confident it's going to still get preached about from the pulpit, but God, God help the congregants of Fellowship Baptist Church to say, hey, I'm going to welcome that kind of preaching into my life. I'm going to amen that kind of preaching into my life. I'm going to recognize that without that confrontational, conviction-led, spirit-led, Bible-centered preaching, even against sin, if it doesn't make me feel good in the moment, I'm still going to love it because I know I need it. Yeah, you just can't stop going to the dentist because he hurt. Can't stop going to the doctor because you're afraid of what you're going to hear. And you can't stop coming to church because it might be exposed that you're not who you need to be. We can't claim God's mercy over our sin and never talk about our sin. It starts with confronting it. And by the way, it shouldn't be a surprise that churches don't like that anymore. The Apostle Paul prophesied it would happen. 2 Timothy chapter 4, look at these verses. He said, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Why? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They can't sit through a message like this. But after their own lust, their own lust shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. And is not that a picture of modern-day Christianity in the United States of America? Again, I'm not saying there's room in the pulpit at any, at any place to be hateful and condescending. But there is a place in this pulpit to be authoritative from the word of God and say that God is not pleased with sin. And you don't come to church to get your ears itched. You come to get your heart changed. And it starts with confronting sin. It continues with confessing Sin. This is where we get into the bulk of chapter 9. Now, now I need to cover something about confession before I get into the text because I think in our society, even in our own community, I think this idea of confessing sin is misunderstood. That's probably a nice term. I think it's falsely taught. And so it brings these questions. Does confession of sin require me to go to a man? Does the Bible teach that I should sit before a pastor, a father, a priest, every so often to soothe my conscience and to bear my wicked, bad, and nasty traits and sins that I've done? Is that what the Bible teaches? I would say that the confession of your sin is to be made first and primarily to God himself. That you are not required as a Christian today to confess all your sins to man. As a way of accountability, it's wise sometimes to usher people in to a sinful pattern of behavior so, as they, so, that, so that you can usher in accountability and, and, and procedures through which you can forsake that sin. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But I'm talking about the need. You don't need, you don't need to go to me to confess your sin in order to be right with the Father. That's not my opinion. That's based on the authority of the Word of God. 1 Timothy chapter 2. For there is one God... And one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Even more clearly in Hebrews chapter 4, seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. 
Let us hold fast our profession. I like this. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the filling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Therefore let us come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is good news. Jesus Christ is our high priest. God is the only Father you need. And Jesus is the one you bear your soul to, good and bad. And by the way, he's the one where you find mercy. Now I want you to notice in our text what happens to when the people of God really get serious about their confession because really the entirety of chapter 9 is, is the children of Israel and their prayer and praise to God recounting the history of their forefathers. Recounting the pattern of behavior from generations past. And here's what happened. God would be good to them. They would forsake God and sin against Him. God would punish them. Then they would confess. God would be good to them. They would sin. God would punish them. They would confess. And it was this long cycle over and over. And the reason why they felt the need to rehash this in their prayer to God is because they wanted to identify and acknowledge and confess the sin of their fathers and their own sin for what it really was. I want to show you this. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. It says, Thou art the Lord the God, who didst choose Abram, and brought us him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees, and gavest him the name of Abraham, and foundest his heart faithful before thee, and madest a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Jebusites, and the Girgashites, to give it, I say to his seed, and hast performed thy words, for thou art righteous. God was faithful to make a covenant with Abraham, that he would be the father of many nations, and guess what? God kept the covenant. Verse 9. And didst see the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard us their cry by the Red Sea. And show us signs and wonders upon Pharaoh and all his servants and on all the people of his land. For thou knewest that thou dealt proudly against them. So didst thou get thee a name as it is this day. And thou didst divide the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. And their persecutors thou threwest into the deeps. You remember the story, Exodus 14? As a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, thou ledest them in the day by a cloudy pillar and in the night by a pillar of fire to give them light in the way wherein they should go. So God was, they were recounting the days when God led them out of Egyptian bondage safely and defeated all their enemies on the way, especially the, the whole scene of the Red Sea. Verse 13, follow along. Then came us down also upon Mount Sinai and spake us with them from heaven and gave us them right judgments and true laws, good statutes and commandments and made known unto them thy holy Sabbath and command us them precepts, statutes and law by the hand of Moses thy servant. They were recounting Exodus 20 and 21 and 22 where God came to Moses and gave him the Ten Commandments and, and gave them a, a, a way to have a structured and a healthy and a spiritual society. And how did the, the, the people of God respond to all of that goodness? Look at verse 16. But they and our fathers dealt proudly and hardened their necks and hearkened not to thy commandments and refused to obey. Neither were mindful of thy wonders that thou didst among them, but hardened their necks and in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage. But, but thou art God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and forsookest them not. God, God did all of these things for the people, yet what did they do? They sinned against him. Do you see this pattern? It continues. Look at verse 22. Study with me. 
Moreover, thou gavest them kingdoms and nations, and didst divide them into the corner. So they passed the land of Sion, and the land of the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. Their children also multipliest thou as the stars of heaven, and broughtest them into the land concerning which thou hadst promised to their fathers that they should go in to possess it. Talking about the goodness of God. So the children went in and possessed the land. And thou subduest before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gavest them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land, that they may do with them as they would. And they took strong cities and a fat land, and possessed houses full of all goods, wells digged, vineyards and olive yards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they did eat and were filled, and became fat. Somebody say amen right there. And deleted themselves, and delighted th themselves in thy great goodness. So God gave them all this land, all this food. All this prosperity, you got to understand that, that every army, every military battle they were in, they were outnumbered. The only explanation for them beating the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Amalekites and the Ammonites and all of those ites is the goodness of God. But yet they responded in verse 26 with disobedience and rebellion. My question after reading this is, why did the people of Nehemiah feel it necessary to rehash all of this in their prayer of confession? Why was, it, why, was it, why was it necessary to get this specific about their sin? Well, verse 32 and verse 33 tell us. Now, therefore, they start talking to God about them. Our God, the great, the mighty and the terrible God, who keep his covenant and mercy, let not all the trouble seem little before thee that hath come upon us, on our kings, on our princes, and on our priests, and on our prophets, and on our fathers, and on all thy people, since the time of the kings of Assyria unto this day. Here it is. Howbeit thou art just in all that is brought upon us, for thou hast done right, but we have done wickedly. The reason they recalled the sins of the past generations all the way up into their own sin is because they wanted, watch here, to be completely honest with God as to the severity of their sin. This wasn't just, please don't miss this, it wasn't just a one-time occurrence. They weren't making a trip to the altar because they said something at work yesterday they shouldn't have said. This was a pattern for many generations. They sinned, God forgave. They sinned again, God forgave again. They sinned again, God forgave. And it continued for decades. And notice, they didn't blame the sin on their fathers. They didn't blame their own sin on previous generations. They didn't claim to be products of their environment. No, they called it what it was, wickedness. And they said this, God, we, not they, we have done wickedly. And we know it was an honest confession because they even acknowledged that God was just in how he chose to de deal with their sin. I want you to look at two more verses because their honest confession really ends in verse 36 and 37. Look at it. Behold, we are servants this day. And for the land that thou gavest unto our fathers to eat the fruit thereof and the good thereof, behold, we are servants in it. And it yieldeth much increase unto the kings whom thou hast set over us because of our sins. Also, they have dominion over our bodies and over our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. They were willing to acknowledge that as a result of their sin, they were serving as slaves in their own country. Listen, they didn't sugarcoat their sin. They didn't minimize their sin. 
They were honest about the severity of their sin. And that's when you know that you have a truly repentant heart. When your confession to God is brutally honest about the severity of your sin. Not the severity of your spouse's sin or your boss's sin or your preacher's sin or your children's sin. The severity of your sin, sir. Your sin, ma'am. My sin makes me think of the prodigal son who took the inheritance from his daddy and he went into a far country that was Gentile land. That means he was hanging out with people who didn't go to church very often. Didn't know Jesus. The Bible says he used all his money. He wasted it all on riotous living, crazy living. And his, his inheritance money would have been a, quite a big chunk. And he became desperate and there was a famine in the land. He went and rock bottom when he had to roll around and pig slop with the pigs in the pig pen. And he got, the Bible says in verse 17, I believe, it says that he came to his senses, Luke chapter 15. That means he came to himself. He had a realization that I made, a, I made a bad choice. I have sinned. And then he began to rehearse his speech that he was going to tell his father. And he went back home and he told his father that speech. And in that speech, there, there were no entitlement at all. There was no minimizing his sin at all. There was no denying his sin at all. There was no rationalizing his sin at all. Here's what he told his daddy. He said, I have sinned. He didn't say I've made a mistake. He didn't say, hey, you know I'm not perfect, so I just did what some kids do. He said, I have sinned. And then he, he, he noticed the severe consequences he deserved when he told his father this. I am no more worthy to even be called your son. Make me as one of thy hired servant. He came back without a spirit of entitlement, recognized the verity of his sin, and he said, you know what, just, just hire me as one of your slaves, daddy. If I can just be back on the farm and be back right with you, even if I'm a servant, that's okay with me, it's what I deserve. Makes me think of a show I used to watch back in the day called Hoarders. And I would like to watch this in the presence of my wife because it made me you know and we would watch this show and they would they would go to these hoarders homes and how, how many have ever seen that that okay a lot of you said wow all right you, you know what I'm talking about then that their homes I mean it's not just a, a little bit of clutter I mean there's newspaper stacked everywhere there's empty cans stacked everywhere the refrigerator's crazy uh, kids can't even make their way to the bathroom hardly without tripping on something it, it's it's crazy it is a real disorder, by the way. And, and they go and, and they begin to document their homes and their rooms and their garages and their backyards and their cars. And then they interview their family members and their family members identify and confess, yes, they have a problem. We need an intervention bad. They interview their neighbors. Oh, yeah, we, we can see it and we can smell it from here. They interview their, their closest friends and say, yes, they, they've had a hoarding problem since... Well, their whole adult life. And inevitably, they get to the point where they want to interview the hoarder. And this is basically the message I heard from the hoarder almost every show I watched. I don't know what the big deal is. It's not hurting anybody. I, I think everybody's overreacting. It's not that big of a deal. I, it's just a problem I'm dealing with. While everybody else is noticing piles of trash in their house, they somehow minimize it. It's not that big a deal. And it made me think of the way we deal with our sins sometimes. 
that there are piles and piles and piles of junk and sin in our lives. And if we were to interview your spouse, they would say, yep, there's sin. If you were to interview your, your kids, yep, there's sin. Interview your parents, yep, there's sin. Interview your school teachers, yep, there's sin. Interview your coaches, yep, there's sin. Interview your preacher, oh, there's piles of junk, he would say. But we, we talk to you about your sin, and you want to say, I don't know what everybody's getting in a ruckus about. It's really not that big a deal. We want to say things like, only God can judge me. And get off my back. When everybody else in your life can see piles of junk in your life, and you're the only one that can't. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm preaching to myself today. We must confess our sin acknowledging the severity of it. That's what they did. They spent an entire chapter talking about their sin. It wasn't a quick prayer at the altar to soothe their conscience. It wasn't, God, forgive me for my shortcomings and bless this food and the nourishment strength of my body. It was a chapter's worth of identifying I've messed up. My fathers have messed up. We've continued in their patterns, and God, we want to deal with it right now for what it is. So it was confronted. They confessed it. But our sin isn't dealt with appropriately just because we acknowledge it. There's one more step, and they took that in chapter 10 of Nehemiah, and that is forsaking sin. Forsaking sin. I want you to look at verse 38 of chapter 9, and then we'll go into chapter 10 here. And because of all this, because of all what? Well, because of all the sin, we make a sure covenant and write it. And our princes, Levites, and priests seal unto it. Verse 1 of chapter 10. Now those that, were, that sealed were Nehemiah. Then they give all these lists of names. Now look up here. Let me explain to you what's going on. In order for them to return to a place of obedience, long-term obedience to God, they, 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 they sought to enter a covenant with God. The first to sign the covenant, because he was a good leader, was Nehemiah. And then that whole list of names from verse 2 or verse 1 all the way through verse 27 is, is the head of the home. The head of the tribes, the head of the families signed their name to the covenant. And this isn't the point of that, but it does make good, clear application that, that, that men, we ought to lead our home. And that we ought to be the ones at the altar. And that we ought to be the ones serious about confessing our sin. But I have found that sometimes in our society, men are sometimes the most stubborn and prideful. And sometimes we are the ones that hesitate the most. It's mama that's humble. Not all the time, but, but a lot of times in spiritual matters, it's like, dad doesn't talk about those things. But hear me, you should, sir. And I should. We should lead our families. And then you go to verse 28, through the rest of the chapter 10, and we won't study it word by word, but here's what's happening. They, they begin to sign the conditions of their covenant. And in verse 29, they say, we're going to observe to do all your commandments. And then they get specific. In verse 30, they talk about uh, observing God's plan for marriage. We're going to get back to one woman with one man for one life. As, a, as described and given to us in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Then, then they said, we're going to get back to observing the Sabbath in verse 31. Then they said, we're going to get back to giving our resources to support God's work. Then in verse 39, the chapter ends by saying, we're just going to be faithful to the house of God. Now, now what, what is the point of all of this? All of these promises, watch church, they indicate a renewed value on spiritual matters. 
The covenant they were signing signified a new direction. It signified a new purpose, a new path, a new plan. Hey, it wasn't good enough for them to just simply confess their sin. That was just the start. They felt like they needed to put feet to their prayers. They needed to put action to their words. So they came up with this specific plan for how they would forsake the sin of their fathers and were not, not return to a place of rebelling and rejecting their God. And that's exactly how we should deal with our sin. But so often we stop at merely confessing it, don't we? Now think about this. We come to an altar, we come to church, kneel in our prayer closet at home, on the drive to work or whatever, and we say to God, because we're, we're convicted, we say, God, I'm sorry. Or please forgive me. Get up from an altar, go home from church, get out of our car, go into the house, and we do the same exact thing again. And we say it again, and we look at it again, and we participate in that sin again. So we come back and pray, God, forgive me. And by the way, he does. His mercy, he's just to do that. But then we go back and we sin again. And we're just like the children of Israel in this vicious cycle. Sin, confess. Sin, confess. Sin, confess. And the only way, Christian, that you move past that vicious and even depressing cycle in your life is to make the choice to forsake your sin. When I say forsake, I'm not saying that you can be perfect. Did you hear me? Don't walk out of here thinking I'm a legalist, thinking that you've got to have it all together in order to be right with God. He paid for all your sins on the cross already. You're good in that regard. I'll talk about that in a moment. I'm not asking to be perfect in that area of your life. I'm not saying because you truly confess and intend to forsake your sin, you'll never return to it again. You're not, you're not getting glorified in your body, free from sin until you get to heaven. But I am talking about making a covenant with God and a plan to totally abandon that sin, to walk away from that sin, to, to part ways with that lifestyle, that habit, that relationship, that addiction, with the intentions to never come back to it ever again. If the sin that you keep returning to involves the person in your life, then you might have to change that relationship altogether if you truly want to forsake that specific sin. If the sin that you keep returning to involves the things that you see with your eyes, then you might need to forsake the medium through which you see those things, whether that be an app or social media or a smartphone or, or a laptop. If the sin you keep returning to involves the way you spend your money, then you might have to invite the accountability of a budget into your life or get a, get a pair of scissors out and slice the credit card in half. If you really want to forsake the sin of impulsiveness and greed... If the sin you keep returning to involves something you put into your body to cut down on the stress you're feeling, then you're going to have to forsake every possible avenue through which you can purchase and access that coping me mechanism. I'm just trying to tell you that you've not fully dealt with your sin until you have made efforts to forsake your sin. But when you do... Hey, when you do make efforts to biblically deal with your sin, you confront it and you confess it and you intend to forsake it. Here's the good news. You will experience God's mercy. That's exactly what he did for the people of God, even though they over and over and over willfully sinned against him. Five times in chapter 9 alone, we're given a glimpse of God's mercy. It's not all negative. It's just not all confronting sin. It tells us about God's mercy, because where sin does abound, grace even abounds more. Look at these passages of Scripture. Chapter 9 and verse 17, but thou art a God ready to pardon, 
gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and forsakest them not. Somebody say amen to that verse. Look at verse 19. And in the time of their trouble, when they cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven, and according to thy manifold mercies, thou gavest them saviors or, or judges in that day who saved them out of the hand of their enemies. Somebody say amen to that. Look at verse 27 of chapter 9. Yet when they returned and cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven, and many times didst thou deliver them according to thy mercy. Say amen to that. Look at verse number 28. Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them, nor forsake them, for thou art a gracious and merciful God. All God's people said amen. amen. And look at verse 31 of chapter 9. Nevertheless, did I already read verse 31, Tammy? She's giving me the head nod. I think that's all the verses. Do you get the point? When you sin, and you deal with your sin... God gives mercy. The same amount of mercy that he gave to these generations over and over and over again, God will give to you. He never runs out. They're new every morning. Here's the great thing about God's mercy. I love this. When you get God's mercy over your sin, here's what you get with it. A fresh start. A clean heart. A clear conscience. The joy of your salvation. Peace that passeth all understanding. Intimate fellowship with God. Can I invite you today to receive God's mercy into your life? The only way you can do that is if you deal with your sin. It's not enough. Listen, Christian. It's not enough to just come and sing about the mercy of God and temporarily put a band-aid over your conscience and make it feel better until next Sunday. It's not okay, Christian. It would be like when we go to junior camp. Sometimes we take these kids from third grade to sixth grade to Silver State Baptist Youth Camp in Sedalia, Colorado. And it's like pulling teeth to get them to take a shower. I think some of them truly believe if it rains outside, that's good enough. They're clean. I've I, I just now got my son convinced that when he gets in the shower, you've got to use soap. Like you can't get wet and then dry off. And You get what I'm saying? I think our church is sometimes looked at like that on Sundays. Sometimes we have the approach of a second or third grader. And we go in and we sing the song. We hear the message, we just hope it doesn't convict us. Go through the invitation, we utter a few prayers from our seat, given to an offering. I say given to an offering. And we, and we never really truly, Brother Scott, we don't deal with our sin. We don't talk about it specifically with God. We don't acknowledge the severity of it. We don't accept the consequences for it. All we do is come soothe our conscience and we return right back to it on Monday. And I say we because I do the same thing. I do the same thing. Would to God we come to this place when the Holy Spirit confronts us about our sin, it wouldn't be a temporary car wash. It wouldn't be a bath without soap. We'd humble ourselves at an old-fashioned altar. And we'd say, God, I have sinned. And with God's help, we will make a covenant to him. That God, with your grace and with your mercy, 
oh, I can't do it on my own, but with your grace and your mercy, would you help me to walk away from the sin, to abandon it, and not return back to it? And listen, Christian, you take one day at a time. One day. You don't come here at the altar, confess your sin, get serious about it, and all of a sudden think you're a spiritual superman. No, no, no. You're still made of flesh and bone. And so when you deal with God on Sunday, you, go, you wake up Monday and you talk to him again. And you plead his new mercies that morning. And, and, and by the way, on Monday you're going to sin. Prepare. So on Monday, get in the rhythm of confession and repentance to a holy God. Aren't you thankful you don't have to come knock on my door during the day and say, Pastor, I sinned. I need, I need to talk to you about that. You might not be thankful. I'm thankful. Your high priest is God. Talk to him anytime, anywhere. There are times, honestly, where I've been on a basketball court, and in the midst of a heated game, I said something I shouldn't have said. I know I'm the only one in the room that's ever done that, Brother Sid. I'm the only one. But there have literally been times when I went to the bench and the Holy Spirit, just a, a minute or two after I did that, pierced my heart. And guess what? I didn't have to go clean a spot off in a prayer closet, janitor's closet somewhere, and, and, and confess for 40 minutes. I have a relationship with Jesus, and I have a medi- with, with God, and I have a, a mediator through Jesus, and I can sit there on the bench, and I can say, God, that was stupid. Forgive me of that. Give me strength just to, well, help me win, but help, help me to have a good attitude when I do it. <laughs> yeah. So my burden is, is to teach you from Nehemiah 9 and 10 that sin is serious. And if you don't deal with it, it will deal with you. So let's take an opportunity to not cover our sins, but to confess and forsake them. And when we do, the book of Proverbs says, you will find mercy. If you agree with the Bible today, say amen together. Stand to your feet. Let's mind God tonight, this morning.